this is Amber Dislaborgia, and today we're going to be talking about two of my personal favorite texts that I've been studying this entire um, human experience semester, and those are Lulu Miller's Why Fish Don't Exist and The Ones Who Walked Away from Amelia's. Very, very interesting stories, and they're all surrounding the theme of something that we're all pretty familiar with, and also don't truly know much about and that we're all grasping to achieve which is happiness and so i'm excited to dive into these texts and discuss more about that maybe answering some questions about it maybe not but then again all we know about happiness is truly nothing and that we're all trying to obtain it in some way in our lives and so let's get started So, what is happiness? Do any of us truly know this term at all? And why do we always ask ourselves this question? I bet you asked yourself this question in some form this morning. At the start of a new day, when you're waking up to the morning sun, you asked, what will make me happy today? Well, with Lulu Miller's Why Fish Don't Exist, I do hope that indulging in this text will give you some answers surrounding happiness. And if not, then leaves you something to think about. And so I wanted to first start with the first chapter of her book, how Miller recounts how when she was seven years old, she was asked her father about the meaning of life. And his response, which he'd been saving in his back pocket to give to his daughter whenever this very curiosity struck And the answer was literally nothing. And how chaos was our only ruler. This massive swirl of dumb forces was what made us accidentally and would destroy us imminently. And so while Miller respects her father and acknowledges his wisdom, she is unable to just surrender to chaos as her only ruler. She is not happy with that answer. And so she sets out to go look for answers herself and with that start that just shows the first step in happiness just to go set out and indulging your curiosity go seeking for something that your inner self is telling you to just listening to to yourself is really one of the first steps to happiness and so i believe miller was onto something here At first, Miller seems to draw inspiration from Jordan's perseverance in spite of the world's chaos that he has especially experienced, and she combs through his archives in awe of his arrogant desire to order the world and to categorize every single thing. And so she hypothesizes that Jordan's perspective might be the answer to her unhappiness, might alleviate some uneasiness that she has, and so hoping his ordering principles might offer the key to her failed relationship, her depression, the feeling that she doesn't fit in. But when she does look closer into Jordan's purported order, it does begin to crumble and it isn't what she hoped to be. And so Miller admits her own incomplete understanding of our country's sword history in the eugenics movement and she writes i can't believe i made it through my entire education without ever learning about our country's leading role in the eugenics movement 
but she attempts to correct for this, excavating facts long buried beneath the sea floor and telling the almost forgotten stories of women subjected to forced sterilization. And so Lulu Miller continues to highlight a history that has been deliberately hidden from our education, a history that spurred by Jordan's eugenicist forever it's still unfolding through discriminatory practices and federal legislation that has yet to be overturned. And so she also points to the non-consensual sterilization of women in California prisons between 2006 to 2010, not that long ago, as one example of the four sterilizations that are still occurring today. And other unsavory facets of Jordan's life and personality come into focus as Miller continues to investigate further. And so Jordan seemed to have a hand in covering up the likely murder of Jane Stafford, philanthropist and co-founder of Stafford University, along with her husband, Leland Stanford. So Jordan fired anyone who questioned his authority at Stanford University's president and at any accusations of cronyism, he claimed his friends were the best scientists in the world. So he need not bother reading other applications and Jordan twisted facts and reframed situations to portray himself in the most flattering light. And in doing so, he erased stories, closed doors, destroyed lives that Miller does the important work of trying to unearth and share. This is the work of a scientist. Lulu Miller says. And so, in the course of her investigation, Miller learns that the classification of fish as a creature is faulty. It doesn't provide meaningful information about how species are related, and it collapses an ocean of nuance into a single inaccurate term. Ironically, uh, Jordan's own meticulous classification of fish uh, precipitated this rupture in organizing the tree of life his insane desire to categorize things and his detailed taxonomy of diversity of so-called fish led researchers to discover that some of the creatures that swim the seas are more closely related to mammals than to each other and so the category of quote quote fish is only helpful in its identification that these creatures live in water. Their relationships to each other and their order in the tree of life are governed by their shared evolutionary novelties, uh, their characteristics, not their habitat. And yet the term, quote, quote, fish, remains part of our common usage. And so historians record that the U.S. pioneered the eugenics movement, but most people reading this book will not know the narratives that run counter to the ones told by Jordan. When Lulu Miller began her own research, she found herself um, not knowing them, and she never shies away from not having answers. And so Miller asks us as readers to be curious about what we will find when we give up the fish when we dismantle the order perpetuated by old white men in sepia photographs an order that has marginalized so many that has erased women and people of color from history and that still continues to inflict harm in the name of science and she begins to answer those questions herself 
uh, with more complex understanding, and Miller rejects Jordan's frame of classification and finds that the previous structure that held up her world were holding her back. And when Miller gives up the fish, she finds the freedom to be herself in a more inclusive world of science. And so Miller breaks the surface tension that has kept Jordan's legacy afloat and perpetuated our broken classification systems. Beneath this placid layer of engineered order and systematically sanitized history, she introduces us to a vibrant world, rich with life and multitudes of fish still to be discovered, deep in the wild unknown. And mainly, Lulu Miller hands us a pair of goggles and invites us to gaze into an aquamarine abyss and explore it for ourselves. I mean, isn't that the whole point of life? We are given a life, a vessel to wander the earth and go about it in ways that we want to. But at times, we are quote quote classified and we're put into a box and we're stuck many of us stay stuck some very few of us do happen to get unstuck get out of the box and then continue to venture into the world into the abyss as lulu miller says but most of us are stuck in this box and we don't know a way out and Lula Miller does explain and indulge in believing that it is our life's work to tear down this order that Jordan has so wanted to implement in everything. And she tells us to keep tugging at this order, keep trying to unravel it, and to set free the organisms trapped underneath and that is truly our life's work. And especially those about moral and mental mental standing, we must question those. We must, we must always question uh, our morals and keep expanding our ideas. And so she lets us know that to remember that behind every ruler, there is a ruler, as her father said. And to remember that a category is at best a proxy, at worst a shackle. And to finally close on Lulu Miller's Why Fish Don't Exist, I wanted to share a quote, a main quote that is in the book that just captures really once we let go of these classifications, these shackles that society has put upon us, what is on the other side of that? And so the quote goes like this. When I give up the fish, I get, at long last, that thing I have been searching for, a mantra, a trick, a prescription for hope. I get the promise that there are good things in store, not because I deserve them, not because I worked for them, but because they are as much a part of chaos as destruction and loss. Life, the flip side of death. Growth of rot. And I wanted to end on that because that truly tells us that 
no matter what we do in our lives, no matter how organized, no matter how we classify things, put things into pretty little boxes tucked away in a category, and even as convenient as that is, we must understand that chaos will always be a part of our lives. Nothing is set in stone. We have to become adaptable and we have to wholeheartedly embrace chaos, not run away from it like we are told to all the time. And that is also one of the key things we need and must understand to achieve happiness in this life, in this one life that we're given. this next section we're going to speak about my favorite personal story the ones who walk away from amelia's and so i'm going to just introduce the opening scene and so it is the festival of summer in the city of amelia's by the sea everyone in the city is celebrating and dancing as they parade through the streets toward quote the great water meadow called the green fields where naked children sit astride horses preparing for a race. Quote, and everyone is going to watch the horse race. Banners are fluttering in the wind, marking the course that the race will take as bells clang joyously and the entire city is filled with music and just joyous, joyous times. Sounds pretty perfect, doesn't it? Well, as we continue on, the narrator pauses to just think about the difficulty of describing a city of happiness to an audience who are conditioned to think of happiness as dull and simple. And so he calls this assumption as false, insisting that strife is a monotonous subject and further is only recognizable in contrast to happiness. And not only is it false to equate happiness with stupidity, it is pretty dangerous. And artists have perpetuated this myth so much so that society has largely forgotten how to describe happiness and smiles have pretty much become archaic and so the narrator clarifies the nature of this city's happiness the citizens of amelia's are happy indeed as i was explaining earlier but not naive or unintelligent their definition of happiness follows from a clear distinction that they understand the difference between what is necessary and what is unnecessary but not destructive and what is destructive and keep that in mind and so the narrator invites the reader to imagine Amelia's as they wish so long as nothing about the city falls into the category of destruction thus Amelia's may have quote central heating subway trains washing machines a cure for the common cold or they could have none of that, it doesn't matter, quote. They, excuse me, the narrator reveals that the city's imaginary status as they describe Amelia's in more and more theoretical terms, and the exact details of Amelia's does not matter so long as the reader is able to imagine a city that conforms to the narrator's loose description. And still, the narrator worries that Omelia's may strike the reader as too perfect, too strictly adherent to rules to be an ideal society. 
And the New Year Reader insists that these guidelines for happiness still allow for just certain amount of hedonism and encourages the reader again to imagine the city however they like. Quote, if an orgy would help, unquote. The city seemed more utopic, and the narrator imagines that in Omelias there is a religion, but no clergy, sex, and nudity are celebrated publicly, and quote, the offspring of these delightful rituals, unquote, of desire are beloved and looked after by all. And so, it is said in the story that I thought at first there were not drugs in Omelias, the narrator writes, but this is puritanical. Thus, the narrator supposes that there is an ecstasy-inducing drug named Drews in Omelias. I mean, how they were describing that one part in the story, I would have thought the same, and it is not even habit-forming. However, few people would need Drews, um, the supposed ecstasy-inducing drug the narrator suspects because the city feels a boundless and generous contentment all the time anyway and the city celebrates victory and encourage but has no soldiers and so the victory they celebrate is that of life and there is ultimately no guilt in omelias and so the narrator returns to the festival of summer the parades of people have mostly reached the fields where the children's horse race is held and the scene is impossibly idyllic and there is good food and the children's faces are just full of food. An old woman passes out flowers, a boy plays his wooden flute and the crowd is flanking the race course and the narrator announces to the reader that the festival of summer has begun. And then pauses to ask the reader directly whether they believe in this scene. And he says, do you accept this festival, the city, the joy? If not, the narrator will reveal one more detail about Amelia's. And I believe this is where it gets interesting. And so he describes in a dark windowless room in a basement beneath one of the city's public buildings lives a malnourished child. They don't call it a boy or a girl, it's simply a child. It doesn't even have a gender, ultimately, which I really took to heart because that's that's part of our identity. And so he further describes this room as tiny, about the size of a broom closet, and how the child shares the room with a couple of clotted, foul-smelling mops and a rusty bucket, and the narrator suggests that the gender's child is just irrelevant and refers to the child as using the pronoun it. And the child is severely underdeveloped, both physically and mentally, and it's just really awful conditions he's living in. And the child is terrified of the mops and shuts its eyes in fear, but nothing will ever change. And so it is said in the story that the door is always locked and nobody ever comes except on occasion a person or a few to refill the water's or excuse me the child's water jug and food bowl like almost like a pet so the people who come to the door do not speak to the child only quote peer at it with frightened disgusted eyes unquote and so 
The narrator reveals that the child used to scream and cry constantly, but after years of neglect, it not only whimpers and hardly ever speaks. It is naked, gaunt, and covered in festering swords from sitting in its own feces, and its stomach is bloated from starvation, for it lives on half a bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. And shockingly, which is what I first thought, I thought this child's presence was not known, but um, the child's existence is not a secret. And so everyone in Omelia's knows about it, whether they have seen the child personally or simply known of its existence. And every citizen knows that everything good in their lives, their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, and the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skills of their makers, exists solely because of this child's suffering. And some of the people in Amelia's understand why this is and accept it, but others do not. But all understand that the perfection of Amelia's depends on this child's abject misery. And learning about the child's existence is a sort of coming-of-age ritual in Amelia's, an experience each child has, usually between the ages of 8 and 12. And despite the justifications they are given, each child reacts in disgust and anger. Even though this child is why they get to live such a joyous and happy life. And their first instinct is to help the child out of its miserable situation, though they are able to override this instinct by reminding themselves that helping the child will ruin everyone else's happiness, causing, quote, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Amelia's to wither and be destroyed, unquote. And so there is no way around this predicament, really, and this is how people see it in um, Omelia's, the one who reside in the joyous state of Omelia's. And so the narrator states that the terms are strict and absolute, though they never state why this is the case. Thus, to live in Omelia's is to ultimately accept this child's misery as a condition of one's happiness. And so, despite the initial trauma of learning about the child, most citizens just come to justify their inaction, and for some, it takes weeks, other years, and eventually almost everyone comes to accept this fact to just live in Omelia's. And the narrator runs through their reasoning. Even if the child were released, it would not be able to experience much joy due to its underdevelopment. It has been afraid for too long, so it will never feel, you know, the warmth of the sun, and it just won't be worth letting this child experience even a small taste of happiness. And so, growing up in Omelia's requires requires children to understand that the true and tragic price of their society's happiness. And so, the people of Omelia's do not forget about the child's misery. Rather, they, their understanding of the child's misery allows them to be um, more deeply understand, understanding and appreciate their own happiness. And the narrator assures the audience that, quote, theirs is no vapid, irresponsible happiness, unquote. They understand that 
they are in debt to the child for its suffering. And as much as the child is a slave to its misery, the people of Amelia's are enslaved to the child's situation. So, in all, they're all powerless to change the terms of their existence. And none of them are truly free. And so, I wanted to definitely sum that up and just clarify that while the people of Amelia's justify neglecting a suffering child they do not take you know this decision lightly and them knowing of this child forces the people of Amelia's to recognize the interlatted nature of happiness and suffering and even though they know that they're indebted to the child they just refuse to help it and in this passage that I just spoke of, the narrator explains that at least in Amelia's happiness cannot exist without suffering at all. And the ones in Amelia's are the ones who benefit from this child's suffering and they're, they just cannot help it. They cannot break this system that the child and the, all people of Amelia's are under. And the narrator pauses to just ask the audience if they believe in Amelia's now and after learning about the child. And he suggests that this cruel situation makes Amelia's more credible. And yet there is another detail about Amelia's that is quite incredible. And this is where I truly had some hope personally of Amelia's when I did hear about this. And so even though most citizens of Amelia's come to accept the awful predicament of the child's misery, um, some do not, and sometimes citizens decide to reject the terms of life in Amelia's, something they can only do by leaving the city alone in total silence. And these citizens walk into the darkness, beyond Amelia's, beyond anything they have ever known, and never come back. And no one knows where they go, for it's really impossible to imagine because all we know is Amelia's. That's all we're told as the audience and that's all they're told as citizens of Amelia's. And so still the ones who walk away from Amelia's do so with a sense of purpose, seeming to know where they're going. And I love how the story ended there, even though we are all curious, of course, where they end up going. But what we need to focus on is how they're leaving behind everything they have known, their happiness, their comfort lives, for something beyond that. Because their happiness was founded on a lie, on someone else's suffering. And that is definitely not a way to live, how anyone should live. And so it's impossible for the reader and narrator and all to imagine what lies beyond Amelia's and this just implies that it is impossible for humans to imagine a society without unjust suffering. Still, certain individuals will strike out on their own to live by their morals, their own morals, and on their own terms. And that ties back to Lulu Miller's Why Fish Don't Exist. Um, We must understand the chaos in our lives. We mustn't ignore it we mustn't hide it away lock it away in a nice little box or an empty dungeon or anything like that we must embrace it encourage 
other people to embrace it and then see what's beyond the shackles that society has placed on us and that on the other side it is hard it's easier said than done of course but beyond that there is happiness and that is what we need to do in order to reach inner happiness for this one life we all live